Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. The podcast you're about to hear was recorded in front of a live audience. It was hosted by myself, Matt Smith. The speakers are Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, and Dr. Kamuda Simpson, Lecturer in International Relations at La Trobe University. The podcast looked at the relations between the United States and Asian countries, as well as perceptions and attitudes. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the La Trobe Asia Research Showcase on the 11th of November 2015. I'm going to really reduce international relations to two basic concepts, I think. You can give us stuff and you want to take our stuff. So if we're putting it kind of down on that level, how does the US see Asia and whereabouts do they rank? I mean, I know Asia is a very kind of broad term, but if if you're going to lump it together collectively, how interested is the US in Asia? Either one of you. <laughs> you start. Um, so I think that that kind of narrative of uh, you have stuff that we want and we also want to give you stuff is actually quite a good uh, little summary. And I think that America's primary interest in, in China specifically, but also the sort of growing economies in, in the Asian region uh, is, it is one of the most important aspects of US foreign policy at the moment. It is uh, a an economic hub, I guess, and it's one that is becoming and is acknowledged by America to be increasingly important economically. So America over the past few years has really sort of engaged in a concerted effort to shift its attention to this region, not just in order to engage or continue to engage economically, but very much to maintain stability. and. You know, the previous speakers were all talking about the importance of stability for all sorts of reasons. And and for the US, its primary interest is stability within this region and trying to make sure that the the ongoing tensions, say, over territorial disputes in various parts of of, um, the South and East China Sea, in uh, particular countries, their border disputes, or just regional tensions between different countries, America kind of wants to try and manage those things in a way that maintains stability so that the sort of economic and trade relationships can continue unaffected. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we, f- we forget, those of us who are based in the region, and I think Australia is very much in the region, tend to f- think that it's, it should be the front and centre of everyone's minds, um, that what goes on in Asia should be the first thing and last thing everyone in the world is thinking about. Uh, and in some respects, that's true, particularly given the scale, speed, and importance of these countries. But for the US, which is a global power, yes, Asia is important, but it's it's one theatre, um, a very important one, but it's one um, challenging part of a global strategy. And I think, to be simple, and I, but I think it's right, that since, since the Second World War, the US has had a global strategy comprised of basically three things. One is ensuring the absence of a competitor, geopolitically speaking, in Europe, the absence of a geopolitical competitor in Asia, and geopolitical stability in the Middle East. And if you look at the distribution of its military forces during the grand sweep of post-45 period, that's what's defined where they are and how they behave. Um, and, that, you know, and, and every other th- priority that the government has, whether it's about free trade or whether it's about human rights or democratization, is always sub- subservient to or subordinate to that goal. If they, if they converge, that's good, but if they don't, that top priority, prior, one that that grand that larger goal takes priority uh, since really the past 10 years I think 
what's been occurring in Asia, and particularly to do with China, has begun to pose questions about that, the viability of that long-term goal. And there is some you know, questions as to whether the US needs to shift what its long-term priorities are. Because is it plausible to think that over the next 30 to 40 years, the US can, can continue to be the have no peer competitor, as the, the strategists like to call it, in Asia? And barring some economic you know, collapse in China, that's hard to imagine. Um, so that when the US looks at Asia, it sees part of this big global role. Now, what, a part that's increasingly challenging and one that is not following the script, as it were. But then if you look elsewhere in a, around the world, the script isn't quite being followed either because geopolitical stability in the Middle East, probably not so much anymore. Um, whose fault is that? Probably Washington's, or at least a fairly significant part of it. And of course, our friends in Moscow with the ambitions of Putin have raised real questions about long-term geopolitical stability in, in Europe as well. So the sort of these pillars that have been in place for a long while are, are being questioned. But it means that if you're sitting in Washington and you're looking at Asia, you've also got to look at all of these other theatres as well. So in that priority thing, it's... it's, it's so if, <coughs> if, if you're looking at Asia and you're trying to, to balance your world priorities, are you even looking at Asia or are you look, or if from the US or are you looking over the top of that, say, uh, Middle East? maybe is the first place you're going to look at, or Russia. So where, where in the scale of things, I'm, I'm asking you guys to, to rank it here on hot or not, so swipe left <laughs> or right. Or uh, <laughs> how, how does the US look at Asia at the moment? And it, should it be a different place? Should it be look, regarded differently? It's, it's a lower priority. I mean, if you look, if you, yeah, if you take as a rough metric, the amount of time spent at State Department press conferences or US presidents press conferences about foreign policy, Asia is a less is less present than the Middle East and Europe. And that's partly because of the crises that are going on there um, and the fact that they, they play a bigger role in the sort of mental map of, of American policy, rightly or wrongly. Um, the US is still, it's a, it's a non-resident power in Asia. It's a, it's a very important power in Asia, but certainly the way Washington sees the world, Washington is a North Atlantic power and it has a North Atlantic worldview in, in Washington. Now there's, and within the US, there's a lot of tussles about that. So you have these different groups who say, you know, we should be focusing much more on Asia and the Asian hands are there. But I think on balance at the moment, certainly at the moment under um, the Obama administration, uh, I think it, Asia does have a, a slightly lower priority. But as Kamuda was saying, the sort of rebalance effort was part you know, we think of it as, a, as an emphasis about what the US was doing with its policy, but don't forget the domestic side of it, which was about signaling inside the machinery of US government that the that American foreign policy should be rebalanced towards Asia. So that's to say, all you North Atlanticists, quieten down, we're gonna give the Asianists a greater priority. But of course that, and that I think was, was obvious, they had a stronger hand during the first Obama administration, but I think they've had a a, a, a less strong hand since, certainly since Kerry's been Secretary of State. And I'd add to that, I think Nick's absolutely right that that rebalance to Asia was partly to say, you know, we need to pay attention over here as well. And yet crises in the Middle East just sort of keep forcing Washington's attention back to that region. But I also think that, you know, what's going on in Russia and Russia sort of becoming a bit more aggressive um, within the European continent, with the many, many crises that are happening in the Middle East and the the sort of concerns about what's happening with China and it, its growing influence as well, I actually think they're all deeply connected, that the, the sort of uh, relationship and, and discussions over particularly energy security and energy uh, sort of 
access between, say, China and Russia. There are uh, weapons deals happening between all of the, the sort of, you know, from China to Pakistan to the Gulf kingdoms as well, and, and those security alliances that are being reinforced. And all of this is, is deeply interrelated and connected, and, and it shows that there are complex security relationships and energy relationships happening that Washington isn't quite in, in control of. And so they're, I assume, watching all of this very, very carefully. So the other thing I'd just add just to that is Obama and his administration, with really one exception, which was Hillary Clinton gave a, a speech at the East-West Centre, which itself was still pretty outwardly focused. There's never, there's never been a meaningful domestic statement about American-Asian policy. That's to say, we've got this rebalance and it serves its purposes and we're telling you, the American people, why we're doing it. It's seen very much as a foreign policy thing of interest to foreign policy wonks and the like and of no great domestic import. And I think that really tells you about the level of priority that it's got, which is not, not, as, not as high in the minds as certainly some people think it ought to be, but certainly not the kind of burning priority that something like a Marshall Plan or anything, you know, grand Cold War strategy was. That would seem to indicate to me that the the way that the priorities are being driven are very much from a security standpoint, uh, not so much a trade, which is maybe something that America should be more concerned about. But if uh, stuff in the South China Seas, the activity there heats up, how far do you think Asia is going to leapfrog up the uh, the list of priorities? Maybe, maybe Nick. Yeah. Or no, just. Just to go back, because I probably was a little unfair cause at the start about um, sort of focusing a little too much on the geopolitics. Because if, if you had an Obama administration person here, the first thing they'd say about their Asia policy is the TPP. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. the TPP I've is got it here. big, big deal. <laughs> yeah. And but it shows that the they would say the engagement with Asia and the focus on Asia is multifaceted, multi-layered. It's not just about you know, two-thirds of our military assets stationed east of the Straits of Malacca. Of course, but the TPP, they were latecomers to that. Mm. Uh, they were bandwagon jumpers. They, they very much took it over once, yeah, once this was, they this got was into a, it. Yeah, this was a trade wonk's dream because yeah. it was about, you know, when it was first set up, it was Chile, um, Brunei, Singapore, Singapore New Zealand, New Zealand and yeah. there's one other. Yeah, this is yeah. You know, these are the big players. These are the heavy hitters <laughs> in global trade. You know, watch out, prizing open Chile <laughs> for those Singaporeans. Um, but then, of course, it got subsumed with all of once these things. Once the groundwork got laid down, um, a lot of other countries realised it was a good idea. I mean, the, the interesting thing with the, I mean, there's a whole the TPP text has come out. I haven't had a chance to read it, although I'm duty bound to do so. God forbid. Um, but what's perhaps most interesting about it is the way in which the Obama government has framed the language around it, which is the language around the TPP is very much about, I mean, Obama stood up and said that, that the TPP is to ensure that China, that, that we write the rules of trade in, in the, this century and not China. Mm -hmm. So that even though it, it actually isn't, I don't think, a, a, a deliberately or not intentionally kind of anti-China uh, document, and it's ostensibly open to all, anyone who wants to join, uh, the way in which it's been sold, the politics of it, have been very much about a kind of, you know, here are the rules, China, you've got to sign on to them or not uh, mindset, which is, I think has dominated the way the Obama administration has approached um, a rising China. And so that it's, you know, it is, they, you know, the, the economic interests are really important to the way um, the US has approached Asia, and yet the security stuff just seems to be always bubbling up into the mindset. I would, I totally agree. I think that that separating economics and security 
away from each other is is a bit misleading in some ways because as you were saying that even though this is this is a trade deal this is about sort of breaking down trade barriers it is very much about uh, security it's about america maintaining its dominance within this region and you know this has been america's explicit policy since the the sort of post world war 2 period is to prevent any kind of emerging power that can challenge its its dominance and so to me, that trade deal and the desire to write the rules, they're rules that favour Washington's continued leadership of, of this region. So to me, that still suggests a security focus, even though we might talk about economics and trade, I, I see those things also as interlinked. I like things being very interlinked. <laughs> it's very simplistic to kind of reduce this thing to, to, to good Asian countries and bad Asian countries. But for the US, <laughs> what's their list of priorities here and how are they trying to kind of move things around to their best interests maybe? To say good, good Asia, bad Asia is probably not a bad way of starting with it because certainly um, historically the US has approached the region in a country by country approach. So mm. it's, it's long gone and the, the image that's always used is a hub and spokes model with the US as the hub and it has a series of bilateral relationships in contrast to Europe where it has a multilateral way of organizing its military alliance structure at the very least. Um, and certainly, you know, if you, you know, you can tick off the countries in the region who are either allies, you know, Japan, South Korea, Australia, um, quasi allies, you know, Taiwan, the Philippines, Singapore, um, friends, aren't allies, aren't quasi allies, but on very much on the US side of the ledger, right, um, uh, Thailand, Singapore, uh, sorry, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, increasingly Malaysia, um, Vietnam, with some question marks around Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, the, the swing states. And then, of course, Pyongyang, North Korea. We know who you know they're 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 China's only ally, actually formal treaty ally. I like how you brought quotation fingers into that answer there as well. So <laughs> I, I, podcast, it works well. I think I think the United States are probably bringing quotation marks around a lot of their friend definitions these days. Yeah, there's, there's always, I mean, that's always been a challenge where you've got the geopolitical allies with countries with whom you're perhaps, you know, it's, you have to hold your nose to get into bed with them. They've been doing this for the Saudis for years, you know, <laughs> um, and we'll continue to do it. But uh, I think, there, and, and there is a sense, I think, at the moment between the US and China, not an overt Soviet style, Soviet US style, you know, there are, you know, a zero sum contest for people, you know, they're on our side of the ledger or they're on your side of the ledger. Uh, but you know, the language the American <coughs> Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, uses is, you know, what China is doing is <coughs> pushing people into our arms. I mean, they, they literally use that sort of language. Um, and that's probably not in everyone's interest to see the region as a contest between the major powers for friends or not, you know, to friend or not friend, he uses <laughs> the, 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 um, the, 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 the sort of social media language. Um, because it is, it is creating not what our friends in Beijing would call the win-win relationships. It's quite the opposite. It's win-lose. You know, you're on our side or you're not on our side. I think America also has a challenge in in the region. In in yes, it has it has allies and it has countries that are, are far more aligned to to America's interests. But those countries' relationships with each other is is far more complicated. And I I think that one of the things Washington also has to kind of struggle with in, in its relationships in the region is, is sort of helping its allies manage their relationships. And of course, um, 
uh, Japan and South Korea springs to mind. There's been sort of some high-level meetings recently and, and really interesting discussions over the, the sort of ongoing both political and historical um, anger <coughs> that they feel towards each other. And, and that, that to me is really interesting that America, even if you're on America's side, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be smooth sailing for America in the region. Mm. And the, the other big, big, uh, big one is, of course, India, where, uh, again, the, the Modi bromance is there um, between Obama and, and Modi. And Obama was the first American head of state to attend uh, Republic Day celebrations earlier this year. <coughs> um, and both sides are very keen to cultivate and improve relationship. And certainly the relationship is so much better than it probably ever has been. But it's still, you know, there's this sort of unease about the link. You know, <coughs> India sees itself very much in this. It, it's an independent power. It doesn't want to be a subordinate power. Um, and although the Modi government has moved a long way from Congress's, you know, um, you know, not just about being not an ally, but um, you know, this sort of non-alignment 2.0 and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, I think the idea that you know that the US can have a quasi-alliance relationship with India that is akin to its relationship with Japan is just not plausible for, for every, every reason from operational up to the domestic politics of it in India um, to the, 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 the basic structure of the political economy of, of South Asia. It's just not, it's so dissimilar to what's going on in East Asia. So that it's, you know, and there's that plus there's our good old friend sovereignty sitting there which says the US has to treat all of these countries as equals. <laughs> and it, it purports to support and does support a liberal international order that respects sovereignty, which means that it can't boss people around. And if it's got these partners and allies and friends, and particularly in Southeast Asia, these small countries, but who jealously, value, highly prize, highly value their independence and the appearance of their independence um, and ensure that it you know, makes the life of the US managing a more complex and multi um, not my, yeah, more complex and more multipolar Asian order that's evolving um, that much harder because for so long it has been the preeminent power in which there was so much daylight between it and everyone else that managing the politics of this is going to be really hard. I'll just ask one more question before I throw it open. Um, if you take policy out of the equation, if you take politics out of the equation, how does the average American uh, think of as Asia? When it comes to China, I think there is a lot of, uh, there's probably two main uh, feelings and, and that one would be that China still represents that kind of traditional, we're, we're very uncertain about them, they're threatening, whether that's because they're economically threatening or you know all our jobs are going to China, or manufacturing has all moved there. Um, or just militarily, America kind of, there's this, you know, you still hear it, particularly from Republicans in Congress, this deep suspicion over China that that China's intentions in the region have to be uh, sort of militaristic, that they are aggressive, they're an expansionist power, and we have to be wary of that. I, I'm i not entirely sure what the, the public thinks, but partly because I just don't think, as Nick was saying, I don't think it gets as much coverage in the media. I don't think that uh, the papers really talk about China or or even India or the Asian region in the same way as that say they focus consistently on on the Middle East and and the kinds of um, narratives that that are really dominant about the security threats from the Middle East. So so I suspect that that that's partly just that they don't pay as much attention to it within <coughs> within the media. 
Yeah, I, I look, I haven't looked at the data on this, so it's just sort of shooting, shooting from the hip. Uh, but two things. One is, I, I think, uh, as Kamuta said, the um, the sense, my, my guess would be, you know, if you look at the, the narrative in the presidential debates, is probably a good barometer of where sentiment is at about this. And it's China as economic threat. And China's stealing our jobs. And China, and this happens always in the, elect, the electoral cycle, that there's, there's some bogey person who gets economically sort of part of the debate. And it's certainly the Republicans, it's very much China is um, out to steal our jobs. And Barack Obama is is he's the one who's pitchforking the jobs <laughs> to the Chinese, mm. you know, TPP Exhibit A, in this um, callous behaviour by the Obama administration. So I think it's and it's not dissimilar to the kind of language that that John was sort of referring to here. That there's this sort of fairly unreconstructed um, set of sentiments that there's not as much political leadership on it as perhaps there ought to be. And in the Republican debate cycle, that's just going to get exacerbated. Um, the other is, and again, it's focused very much on the Obama administration, and this is the domestic politics of American decline, and particularly American weakness, and the perception that the Obama administration and its critics have been strongly encouraging, is that the Obama administration is, is not just cautious, it's weak, and that China is taking advantage of this weakness. But I think in the US, the sense of perceived American weakness is focused much more on Russia and the Middle East. So what Putin's been able to get away with in Crimea, what ISIS and co are getting away with in the Middle East because of American weakness. Um, and of course, that's, that stands in, in stark contrast to the sense that the Obama administration absolutely has that America is a war-weary country, you know, that, it, mm. that, that the use of force is really not on the table um, for, domestic, for strong domestic political reasons, absent all of the good strategic reasons why you wouldn't want to use it. So, but I think there is, but as, as Camus is absolutely right, I think the sense in the sort of you know, public opinion you know, great big caveat about just what that in actually entails about these things is not heavily focused on um, the region apart from these two points. That's my sense, but it's not something that American domestic foreign opinion stuff I don't watch too closely. Yeah. All right. Any questions? All right. So the, the, the question was justify what you said, <laughs> what the objectives were. <laughs> Um, is that the gist of it? <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's, it, 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 for, as, a, as a good social scientist, the sort of methodological challenges of, of divining what it is that states intend is one, of the pro- is, it's one of the profound challenges of studying international relations. And in fact, there's a whole range of differing methodological steps you can take um, to, to do this. One of which is you, you don't believe what's, the classic one is don't believe what states say, ignore all of that, look at what they do and judge them, judge them on the basis of what they do. Um, there's others to do with, you know, you quantitate, you know, basically do quantitative modelling of state behaviour to, to do these sorts of things. Um, my sense certainly is judging the US on its behaviour, and if there's a degree of consistency in what it has been doing for a long period of time, um, is that the US, I think US policy on Asia has been very consistent. I think the rebalance is largely a PR exercise in the sense for a, a number of reasons. I think if they, there hasn't been any meaningful shift in how the US has been approaching the region. Um, and it's predicated on the assumption actually that those three things are all coterminous. That is American military predominance preserves the international rule of law which underpins regional stability and has done so since 1975. And, and the key thing that I think is, and probably the most important question is whether and whether that assumption is and I think it's right for the past in the sense that I think it, it, it has been crucial not the only thing but been really crucial at making Asia so stable and a stability which has 
been the platform for its economic growth. But is whether that assumption, US primacy, produces the rule of law or an international liberal order, call it that, it's probably a slightly more neutral term, um, which produces regional stability. Uh, does that produce that end out into the future? And my supposition, I've written about this in a few different places, is no, it doesn't. In fact, quite the opposite, which is by continuing to pursue the same policy out into the future, which they've been pursuing since the 70s, it assumes that the capacities and intent of others, particularly China, but not only China, remain static, and that China will see and others will see in an American order, an order that they are happy with and content with and can find a home in, as it were. And I just don't see that as, as plausible. Um, and the problem, I think, is that, and, we, and this is where the, the, the sort of tragedy is, I don't think the US intends, nor does, nor does China intend, or other intend that they will take steps to produce a less stable, less peaceful order, but they are doing what they think is going to produce a more orderly set of regional relations, and it's actually going to do the opposite, because their underlying hypotheses are incompatible. And the real challenges, I think, particularly Washington and Beijing, can't see how each other cannot be incorporated into the kind of worlds that they want. So, I just wanted to add, I, I think those three things are fundamentally um, sort of dependent on each other and, and in that way that, you know, America sees its, its dominance of, of not just that region, but its, its sort of global leadership as the very, the, the fundamental thing that creates global stability and a rules-based international order. And, and you're absolutely right, Nick, is that that challenge is going to come if anybody, you know, if America suddenly is being challenged by a regional power and, and whether or not how far America will go to actually maintain that status quo or, or keep that dominance. And I don't, I have no idea how far it would take that, whether it would challenge China on that on that path. But I think that's something that is is definitely concerning for the future. Okay, the, the question was regarding the impending, it's a long way off, but we're, we're exhausted about the election already. Only year. a year away. Only a Only. year away. <laughs> uh, what, what, a change to the, what a change to the presidency will do. So what will Trump do? What will Trump do? <laughs> American foreign policy is, is remarkably consistent, regardless of who comes into office. And the, the alarmist sort of um, chest beating rhetoric that Trump and co have engaged in. And Trump is really, he is really tapping into that narrative of fear of American decline and, you know, we're losing our jobs, we're being, you know, there's an influx of people in coming across our borders, we've got to put up Fortress America. I think that's very much a domestic political act to try and garner support. I suspect... Ultimately, he's a businessman. Ultimately, he's a businessman, and, and I suspect that Ultimately, if, he's a huckster. <laughs> and if he was in power, then, you know, the, the sort of foreign policy apparatus and traditions in America, are they're very strong, and they don't radically change from president to president. In the same way, I think if, if Clinton <coughs> is the next uh, US president, she would be dealing with the same very large foreign policy bureaucracy, the same, and you know, most of the foreign policy advisors have been around for, for many administrations and they tend to sort of cycle in and out of think tanks and, and universities and then back into government. And so I think we will see, barring some kind of major 
crisis or, or challenge, I think there will be quite a bit of consistency regardless of who comes into to power. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I think there's the, the language, I, I think be, Obama will be seen, I think, as the sort of high watermark, low watermark, depending on your point of view, of a kind of moderate, cautious approach to the US and the world. Um, and again, to sort of echo some of the themes that, that John was talking about earlier, I think the, there will be in a US-Asia policy, regardless of who's in, in office, um, a great deal of continuity. Mm. Um, the optics of it might change, the language of it might change, there might be a sterner rhetoric um, and the like, but it's, it's hard to see any decisive transformation, either a huge you know, doubling down on Asia, as it were, or a disengagement. I think both of those are unlikely. You know, if Clinton comes in, which is probably at the moment the most likely outcome, um, but it's so far off it's hard to tell, uh, it's probably pretty likely that Kurt Campbell um, will be the Deputy Secretary, so Secretary of State is the, um, or sorry, Secretary of State is the, he's, it's what he's playing for. So you'll have a kind of upstep. So, so Hillary was Secretary of State and he was running Asia policy with the State Department, so you're likely to have, I mean, at, who knows how these things play, um, but certainly that's some of the chatter you hear and that would be a real kind of continuity with a Obama administration one's approach. But I think Kamuta's absolutely right. The, the underlying kind of inertial qualities of the way the US approaches the world are quite strong. And you know, Bush people will tell you, you know, the rebalance, we started that, that was our policy. They've just put some democratic language around it and, and shown up to a few meetings. We were the ones in the second Bush administration who really started going to ASEAN, going to APEC, putting an emphasis on all of this stuff. So I think that con- continuity is the most likely outcome. Anyone else? Asian Infrastructure yeah. Investment Bank. Um, the handling of this was curious. So for a long time, we, the West, Washington, been saying to China, we want you to be, in the words of Bob Zellick, responsible stakeholder. That's the language. And so China says, <coughs> the region needs infrastructure investment by measures. You know, you see these figures, epic, eye-water, you know, eye-popping figures of tr- you know, the tens of trillions of dollars in infrastructure investment that's needed. So the Chinese say, well, we're going to propose an Asian infrastructure investment bank, particularly focused on lesser developed countries and providing ports and bridges and roads and all this sort of stuff. And we'll lead it and we'll fund it and we'll set the rules. And the Americans didn't like that, didn't like it much at all. Uh, and very curious, I mean, the, the, to me, the issue was more uh, Secretary Kerry and various others were running around very publicly saying, don't join this. The public language was, um, this will water down governance standards, it'll undermine the gold standard that is the World Bank and the IMF, which if that's your gold standard in, you know, international financial institutions, ooh, ooh, uh, um, and various other things. But it was really about the politics. We don't want China to get in front of this. And as plenty of people have said, IMF, World Bank, they're Bretton Woods institutions. Who wrote the Bretton Woods system? The Americans did with the, the Brits as a sort of side, side show. They know how this game plays. They, they see what's going on because they've done it before and they see China, that's the thinking, when they see China doing, replicating this and we're trying to get people to not play ball. And then of course everyone did play ball. Um, and you know, so, so now the question is how do you manage this thing um, and manage the fact that you kind of screwed up the, the diplomacy around it? Um, I think you know the, the the underlying sense is what's there is probably not in, in objectively a bad thing, but there is there is underlying there is some not too subterranean concern about how Chinese um, influence could be strengthened through all of this. Um, and of course, the 
the joiners were all saying, you've got to be in the tent to set the rules, everything from governance to strategy to, you know, who, where, uh, rules about this money shouldn't just be funneled back into SOEs. Because the, you know, the, the critique of the AIIB was this is just a way of China getting surplus capital and surplus capacity outside of China and, and getting returns, which is partly that. I mean, it is partly that, as is the one, one Belt, One Road and the BRICS Bank. But it is also about um, providing you know, a public good that, that the market certainly isn't providing. Um, so, and I think that unease, I think, I, I think the, the real issue is how, to what extent can the US make its peace with it? To what extent can it see this as something it can shape or see even as something in which it can collaborate ultimately? Um, the, the, un, the fundamental problem, sort of getting back to the point I was saying to John, is that it's seen as a contest. And that's, that's the fundamental problem politically, that a technical thing like an infrastructure bank is seen as a contest about influence and strategic will. And that's, that's the way a very divided international order is going to, that, that's the sort of thing that's going to create and reinforce this divided, contested sense about <coughs> the kind of Asia we're getting. Um, and the problem is I don't see that changing with, the, I mean, that continuity point is, is the sort of slightly disconcerting in that sense. I agree, and I think that the the most important element of this has been the, the symbology surrounding that sense that the Bretton Woods institutions sort of they really significantly failed to to manage the global financial crisis in an effective way, and 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 that adds to this narrative as you suddenly have these new financial institutions emerging, particularly the AIIB. It, it adds to that kind of the, the growing narrative of power or economic power shifting away from Washington towards Beijing and, and how, and that America, rather than managing that in a, a very sort of, um, you know, diplomatic and, and effective way, they sort of jumped up and down and got very angry at the fact that people were, were sort of joining this new, this new club. And, and again, that sort of showed to me that there was a, a, a sense of almost impotence in that that reaction that they didn't quite know how to handle this again i don't, substantively i'm not an economist i don't really know how much of an impact that is going to have on on us economic primacy but but narrative wise and symbolically it, it really does send a strong message that there is this sort of shift happening all right, um, we're going to have to leave it there, sorry. So please join me in thanking Nick and Kamuta for their t time and thoughts today. <laughs>